Malachi chapter 1. The oracle or the word of the Lord. uh, Pardon. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return, build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory. And the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that From your hand, says the Lord. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we turn our faces toward you. We come to the God that said so many years ago that you are a great king and your name is feared and will be feared 
among all the nations. From east to west, it will be exalted. And every competitor, whether it's the name of a false god that we have now forgotten, or the false gods that are offered today, whether it's our name, our ideas, our preferences, God, it will all be laid at the feet of your son. You will see to it. We glory in you, a holy, pure, and right God. Nothing you have done, nothing you have promised yet to do, is blemished in any way with unfairness, with unrighteousness. You are just. And yet we can sing these songs to you because you are also the justifier of every guilty, ashamed person who runs to meet you at the cross and looks to the life of Christ's obedience, to the sacrificial death which has paid the penalty as his or her only hope. We're grateful, Father, that there is no one too young to hope in him, no one too old, no one too far gone, and no one too good. We come to you this morning because you have come to us. You have sought us when we cared nothing for you. Your love is an unmerited love, but God, we're ashamed to say it was an unsought love. You found us. You called our names, and so we called to you. And we pray that this wonderful expression of unexpected kindness from the offended king, God, let it spread. Let it spread to every person in our homes. Let it spread to every visitor. Let it spread down the street, through the churches of this land, through this world, generation until generation, until Christ comes. We pray that you would grant us such a sight of you this morning here, that we would gladly live for your worth and not for ours, that we would be self-forgetful, even as a group of people gathered together, that as we think of you and what you deserve, we would gladly forget us the tyranny of the urgent would be pushed away and the eternal would be focused on. God, help us. You know how easily distracted we are. You know how many legitimate things there are for us to consider. And we are a people that are worried and fearful when we should not be. So whether we are self-satisfied and smug or despairing and drifting, or walking close to you, wherever you find us, God, work. And work in such a way that your name is exalted in front of us, through us. God, you are our life. Where else would we turn? Have mercy and strength. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We are returning to the theme of worship. In the chapter of Malachi that I read and on into chapter 2, we see just the tip of the iceberg of a problem that occurred and God addressed. The problem was not open idolatry, 
They had already been disciplined and judged for that idolatry. At this point in Israel's history, uh, Judah, Israel to the north is dispersed. Judah to the south, because it also was idolatrous, it's taken into the Babylonian exile. And then it's returned. And we see in books like Ezra and Nehemiah, we see in the other prophets, how God graciously restored his people. Jerusalem, which was crushed under the foot of the Babylonians, is being rebuilt. The walls around the city are rebuilt. The temple is even rebuilt. True worship of the true God is restored. But in the time of Malachi, things are not where they once were in, you know, in the golden era of Israel. The people in Israel's day, uh, in Malachi's day, can look at the temple, and some of them are, you know, well, before Malachi's day, some of them are old enough to remember the temple that Solomon built, and then they see this temple that's been rebuilt, and it's not as glorious. They look at their nation, and the borders have shrunk, and they become convinced of the lie that God does not actually love them like he says he's loved them. And when that lie, especially after seasons of drifting and discipline, and then we misunderstand the discipline as an expression of God's indifference toward us, when that lie is embraced, then we find that the people begin to become indifferent toward God. It's natural and it's wicked. We feel the same temptations. We can feel like God has forgotten us. And uh, we can feel like God doesn't even notice what our family's going through or what you're going through as an individual or what our church is going through, what our nation's going through. And we think, well, I'm, I've failed often. And I think it's probably because God's become indifferent. And if you believe that lie and join with the enemy's accusations against God, you will find yourself drifting. And it's not that we drift into open idolatry. It's much more subtle than that. What happened in Malachi's day and what has happened many times since and what we want to guard against is that indifference toward God, that cold love toward our God that creates or produces in us a kind of religion that is just going through the motions but there's no heart. And so we're just giving God the basics. There's a number of things that come when the people doubt God's love and they don't love him. And we're going to be focused in on just the issue of worship today. We'll look at that this morning. We may have one more Sunday on worship and then we'll return to the Ten Commandments and look at the third commandment. But this morning, I want us to look at this issue which we've talked about in years past. So for some of us, it's review, but it's good to be reminded. And for some of us, perhaps you've not thought of it. Have you considered what kind of worship God, the God of the Bible, will always reject? And have you considered what kind of worship the God of the Bible will always accept? The reason we need reminding is because we are all born convinced that if we show up on a Sunday morning, I don't mean when we're kids and our parents, you know, don't give us any choice, but I mean when you're an adult and you have the choice and you can make an excuse 
that sounds plausible or you can, you can just say there's no excuse needed, I'm just not interested. But if we make the choice to get up and give our Sunday mornings to God, it is just ingrained in us that we think God is overjoyed, that he's thrilled, and whatever we offer is great. Especially if we do it with some real heart, some passion, you know, earnestness. We're pretty serious about it. If we were sincere when we went to church on Sunday morning, it seems to us impossible that God himself didn't accept it. But that's not what the scripture says. And it would be a tragic thing to come Sunday after Sunday to open your Bible day by day, to feel that you're living a life that is devoted to God and that you're a true believer and that God is pleased with what we're offering only to find out when it's too late to do anything about it that actually we were deceived. Does the scripture give us any guidance in this? And it does. And what we're going to look at this morning is four categories of worship that God always rejects. Now, that is fairly gloomy, that's the warning part. But then we take those four, and we won't have time to do it all over again, but the suggestion will be in front of you. Why don't you take and look at the same four things, and we flip them, and we see that's the kind of worship that God always accepts. And then we'll look at uh, a helpful motivation, and we'll be done. What kind of worship does God refuse? Let me give you four categories. Some of them have some multiple ways that we see them show up. First category, God always refuses to accept any worship that is offered to someone else. It's simple, it should be obvious to us, but it's not always as obvious as it should be that God has no desire, and in a sense we would say no right, to accept as, a, as an expression of worship, a, a gift that we bring and offer to God, God will not accept something we bring and offer if it's not offered to him. If it's offered to someone else, why would he accept it? Why would he respond to it? Now, if we lived in a culture that still commonly offered us the option of other gods that were carved with human hands and made with hammers and chisels, I suppose that would be pretty obvious. If we came this morning and there was a, a golden Buddha beneath the pulpit and I said, this week we offer worship to Buddha. And if we're very sincere, I suppose that Yahweh, that the living God of the Bible, that he'll, he'll be happy with that as well. But it has the name Buddha on the package, and God's not going to open it and praise us. No one would be okay with that, but there are more subtle ways to offer worship that appears on the surface to be something we're handing to the God of the Bible, but actually it's not. And one of the common ways that that happens is attempting to offer worship to the right God, not Buddha, not some other name, to the right God, but in the wrong form. And that can be difficult to spot. But it is not any less offensive 
than setting up an idol that someone carved and putting it right down in front of the pulpit and saying, today's service is all about this deity. And perhaps our other God, the God of the Bible, will be acceptable, will find it acceptable as well. Well, in the uh, Behold Your God study, we used an illustration that I hope kind of drives it in and makes it so you can't forget. But let me remind you. Uh, in the study, we use this illustration. Imagine a man goes to work and uh, at the end of the week, you know, Friday, he's tired, but he, he's, it's Friday. He's so glad to be getting off work and he's driving home. And as he's driving, commuting home, he thinks of uh, time with his kids and his wife and what they're going to do that weekend and, you know, things that he looks forward to. And when he gets to the house and he comes to the front door, He's a little surprised that the, that the kids don't kind of run up and say, hey, dad, his wife doesn't say, hey, how was, the, how was your day? Uh, nobody meets him, so he just keeps walking in, and he walks up, and he turns the corner, and there's the dining room, and the whole family is seated, seated there, and, and they're, they're having supper together, and there's a man in his place. He's a man that looks a lot like himself. He he says, that man, that man looks a lot like the husband and dad. He, he's wearing the dad's clothes. He's the same size. So the family turns to the father, to the husband, and says, well, we started without you because we have someone else to kind of stand in for you. And we thought you would be flattered because we like you so much that when we got a substitute for you, we got one that looks just like you. He, he, he talks like you. He looks like you. He fits all your clothes. And of course, that wouldn't be flattering to the, to the dad, to the husband. When we come together in an evangelical church in the U.S., we don't put a Buddha idol in front of ourselves and say, how about this version of God? We are tempted to put a different Jesus that we fashion into a, 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 a form that's more manageable, easier to live with, reasonable, that we, we feel familiar with. He's approachable. He's like one of us, just bigger, more helpful. And we expect God to be pleased and perhaps to accept the worship we offered to an adjusted version of our God, because when we adjust it, we use the right name. We say, oh, we're not here for Buddha. We're here for the God of the Bible. We're not here to hope in Buddha. We're here to hope in Jesus. But when you get down to it, it's a God. It's, it's a savior that we've adjusted. It looks a lot like the real thing, but he's not. There are biblical examples Probably the best known to us would be the golden calf. Not the one that Jeroboam made, although that is another example, but let's just use one. The golden calf that was built by the first high priest of Israel, Aaron, the brother of Moses. God rescues the Jews from the tyranny of Egypt, from this physical slavery, and he is in the process of rescuing them from that point forward from the spiritual slavery to idolatry. 
Egypt has countless gods, and the Jews have been there for 400 years almost, so it's easy to see how idolatry gets into their bloodstream. We see it, of course, throughout Exodus and Numbers and in, throughout the whole Old Testament. It, they, they find it hard to shake. When Moses meets with God, after being rescued from Egypt, God calls Moses up onto the mountain. This is a God that they can't see. This is a God that, that they're not familiar with. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's true. He's their covenant God. That's true. But it appears they have become very unfamiliar with this God. Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with this God, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, and the mountain is trembling, and, and there's this great cloud that comes down on the mountain, and there's flashings and thunderings, and Moses has been gone a long time, and Moses' is, God is terrifying. So down in the camp, after a while, the people you know go to Aaron, and they say to him, um, can you make us a God? Because Moses, uh, we don't know what's happened to him. I don't think he's coming back. And his God, the one that's on that mountain meeting him, is kind of scary. So we want you to make God a God for us. Now, what is so shocking is they don't want a different God. They want the same God that's meeting Moses, but they would like him in a different form, in a form that they are familiar with. The Egyptians have a golden calf God. And so Israel, you know, for whatever reason, thinks this is a great idea. Let's have a golden calf version of our God. The Egyptians called this God Hathor, a God of joy, of dancing, and fertility, you know, crops, children. And the Jews say, that's a great idea. We don't have Hathor, we have Jehovah. But let's put them in a form that we feel is more agreeable to what we want. So they do. They bring their earrings, all these gold earrings. They give them to Aaron. Aaron melts it down, pours it out, molds it, fashions it, makes it into this golden cow. And they begin to worship. And of course, you know that God is greatly offended. The fact that they have named this cow... Jehovah has not impressed Jehovah. The living God is not impressed that, they, that Aaron says, this is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Tomorrow, we will have a special worship service for this God, the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's clear in Exodus that Aaron is not saying, this is a different God. We'll have two gods, the one on the mountain and the one here. No, no, this is just a new form of the same God, and God is offended. Every Christian must guard against this type of worship that's rejected. We must spend time in the Word. You can't just trust the leaders to do it. You can't just trust teachers to do it. You can't just trust parents to do it. Every true believer is obligated to search the scriptures and to ask themselves, am I loving, worshiping, depending upon, devoting myself to the God that I see in scripture? Or am I doing that to a God that has been adjusted? A Jesus that looks a lot like Jesus, sounds a lot like Jesus, has the same book, hymnal, and church building as Jesus 
But when we really get to the root of it, it's not really Christ. It's more us dressed in a religious robe. And God rejects that. Let's look at a second type. God always refuses to accept any worship that is not offered to him in the way that he is commanded. So if we offer worship, but it's not really to him, it's to an adjusted version of him, that's rejected. If we offer worship to him, but in a way that we desire, in a way that we don't adjust God, we adjust the way we worship him, we ignore his word and we go a different route, he also rejects that. And that's hard for us as Americans because I suppose that one of our fundamental qualities as Americans is we are an innovative, um, we are, you know, an ambitious nation. We're not an old nation that just loves our traditions that go back, you know, centuries or thousands of years. We're a fairly young nation and we're innovative and we're aggressive. And in a lot of areas of life, being innovative and eager and, you know, aggressive is good. In many business situations, being innovative, you know, not being satisfied with the status quo, that's great. In relationships, we, we, we want to cultivate our friendships and not just let them get stale. In marriage, with our kids, a lot of times being innovative is praiseworthy. But when it comes to the relationship with God... God has defined how we come near to him. God has defined what pleases him and what does not please him. And none of us has the right to alter God's way of coming to him, God's way of worshiping him. All innovation in worship is rejected by the God who has given us his word. We're not so significant that if we come to God and we say to him, I, I know what you wrote here. I see how they worshiped in the new covenant church. And um, I, I appreciate it. But now, 2,000 years later, we've got some new and improved ideas. And we're sure that you will really like what we're doing. And God rejects it. Let me give you a few examples. A Christianity that is much more convenient than the stuff in the Bible. And again, a common example for this that we've looked at before is the sin of Jeroboam in the Old Testament. Jeroboam is chosen by God to take the northern ten tribes away from the southern two tribes. To take the northern ten tribes, God is going to split Israel into Israel up north and Judah down south because Solomon, Solomon the son of David has embraced idolatry. Solomon has paid for idolatry to, to get a root, its foundations in Israel. David never did that. Solomon has done that. God does not tear the kingdom away from Solomon, but God has explained to Solomon he will tear it away from his son. Solomon dies. Solomon's son, the grandson of David, Rehoboam, becomes king. And when Rehoboam becomes king, God allows Rehoboam to be a very proud young fool. And his comments to the nation split the nation. But it's not Rehoboam's careless, arrogant words 
that ultimately split the nation. It's God. God has already promised another man, Jeroboam, of no relation, that Jeroboam will be his hand-picked man to be king of the north. And God makes so many wonderful promises. Read 1 Kings. He makes these wonderful promises to Jeroboam, that he will be with Jeroboam, that he will be with Jeroboam like he was with David. And Jeroboam has no reason to fear everything he needs to lead the people of God in the right way is provided. But at that critical moment, Jeroboam, who does not know God like David did, is a pragmatist and he's afraid that he will lose his job and lose his life as a traitor when Israel to the north, during those three key seasons of worship where all the males are required to go down to the temple, which is down south, so you have to cross over into, into Judah and you worship there in the city of David in Jerusalem. And as you worship there, your hearts will, you know, they'll go back to the line of David and, and you'll, you'll become sentimental and you'll say, well, we should never have left. And then they'll come home and kill me, the traitor, the usurper, and reunite. And so he, in fear, not trusting the Lord, he, he, he rearranges worship. So he makes a temple up north and a temple down south. If you live far up north, no more long trips down, no multi-day trips with kids and animals and family all the way down to the temple and then all the way back. No, you've got a temple in your backyard. It's so convenient. And if you live down south, you don't have to go into Jerusalem. You don't have to cross the border. You've got a temple now down there. And so we have these rival temples, which God does not sanction. And in these temples, Jeroboam puts golden calves. Everything is designed around convenience, even the leadership. Most of the Levites, the priests that the Bible sets apart, most of them up north are not happy with the new church service. And so they leave the north, the Bible tells us, and they migrate down south. At least they feel, at least we can be with people that worship the right God in the right way, not the right God in the calf form. Well, with Levites and priests leaving, there's nobody to work the churches there. And so Jeroboam says, good news, any man that wants to be a priest, you don't have to be a Levite. All right? You don't have to be from that limited tribe. We're much more open-minded. Any of you can be a leader. And he appoints leaders. Now, we've talked about this before. So let me just point this out. Jeroboam does not believe that God is worth worshiping the way he commands. Certainly not worth risking his kingdom or life. So Jeroboam redesigns worship in a way that is convenient and it is a smashing success. If you look at it from the human perspective only, people are thrilled. The northern temple, the southern temple. We don't read anywhere in the Old Testament that Jeroboam built these temples, built these calves, hired these new people to be priests, and nobody showed up at church. With very few exceptions, the north seems to completely embrace the new religion. 
Of course, they say they're worshiping the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they are worshiping him not only in an altered form, but in an altered way. Next, another way that we can alter the way we worship God is uh, not just through, you know, designing religion to be convenient for us, but maybe we could call it the new improved religion. In Exodus 20, let me give you an example that we haven't used often. If you have your Bibles, look to Exodus 20. Look at verse 22. In Exodus 20, you ought to recognize, not recommend, you ought to recognize the chapter because it's the chapter that has the Ten Commandments, and we've been there for a little bit. If you keep reading, though, when you reach the end of the Ten Commandments, the chapter doesn't stop. God continues to say some things to the people. And this begins a long section that is full of practical, specific applications of, this, of the general summaries of God's moral law in the Ten Commandments. Before we finish the chapter, toward the end of chapter 20, God mentions, the first thing that God mentions is this issue of an altar, okay, where they would present sacrifices. Now, this is a time in Israel's history where they are going to be worshiping God and presenting sacrifices, but they do not yet have a tabernacle. They don't have a temple. So once the tabernacle and temple are built, these special instructions at the end of chapter 20 are become void, all right? But until those are built, he gives these instructions. Look at verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. So he repeats the first commands. You shall not make. And then here comes in verse 24, a strange interjection. You shall not make an altar of earth. Uh, sorry, you shall make an altar of earth for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. You shall, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. So God will receive that worship. Verse 25, if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by the steps of my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. So it's a strange passage. Have you ever thought, why does God put that there? And what is it saying? If you do a little research in the ancient um, world and the, uh, the nations around Israel, the cultures around Israel, every culture has gods the gods that they've made. Israel has a living God. One of the marks of idolatry is that it is generally supported, promoted by very flamboyant, excessive, beautiful things. Beautiful buildings, perhaps beautiful altars. The true religion, though in the Old Testament, we have a lot of beauty there in the tabernacle and the temple, portraying the coming of Christ. But once Christ comes and has fulfilled those portraits, those pictures, those types, in the new covenant, 
things are very simple. It doesn't mean that ugly is spiritual, but there is no need to have gold-covered buildings to worship the living God. The beauty of holiness and humility, the beauty of God himself, that's the great attraction. But if all you have is a chunk of rock that someone carved and you paid him a lot of money and he covered it with silver or gold and you stick it down in front of the people and say, look, here's our God. We should all give something to it. We should all be devoted to this God. Then you're going to need something to substitute for the fact that that God doesn't really exist and doesn't ever do anything for the worshipers. So pagan worship is generally something that's very flamboyant. It offers sensual pleasure. Many of the, the false gods of the Old Testament were fertility gods. We've talked about that. We read sometimes where God rebukes Israel for their idolatry and he says, you love to go after other gods like a wife that chases after other men, men that aren't her husband. And you love their services with their parties. It's so exciting. He mentions the food, the raisin cakes. Israel, when it worshiped God, it didn't get to have a party and have a bunch of dessert. But the pagans did. Now think about the altar. The altar in this situation, the altar is either to be made out of earth, dirt, or stones, but not cut stones. In other words, while the pagan nations all around you worship their false gods with beautiful, elaborate altars that rise up to the sky, you know, they're all, they were always built up and they're impressive. And their priest walks up all the way up and he offers this animal. It's, it's just so impressive looking. It's stirring and moving. You, when you worship me, the priest is to offer a sacrifice on a dirt altar, a dirt mound or a stone, uncut stone. Don't even do a cut stone. Don't even make it that pretty. It's to be plain. And the priest isn't going to walk up really high so that everybody thinks, wow, you know, he's drawn near to God. What is amazing about Israelite worship, the worship of the true God, is that there's a God that they're meeting, not that their altar is impressive. They are not allowed to make fancy altars like the nations around them. If they do, God will not accept their worship. Any changes they make, God says, it's not improving it. It is just um, defiling what should have been beautiful. And we can do the same. We can be a bit embarrassed as we offer the world Christ. We can be a bit embarrassed when they show up at a time of worship and they say, so what do you have for my kids? What do you have for this? What do you have for this? What do you got to offer me? And we say, well, we, we have Christ. And they say, is that it? Well, yes, that's it. We're not interested. If we try to improve on the worship of God and we take what is beautiful and simple and try to make it as flamboyant as what the world offers us, forgetting that a living God in our midst is what makes it exciting, then our worship will be rejected. Third, 
not the big category, but under this category. So small point number three. I know that my numbering systems are, you know, beyond hope. But uh, another way that we can do adjusted worship is we could call it the self-styled worship. And again, this is a passage we've thought about before. In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 10, there's this amazing event in verse 1 and 2 and 3. After all those chapters at the end, at the second half of Exodus, explaining exactly how everything is to be made for the worship of God, even priests' garments, even incense, exactly what ingredients go into the incense that, are, that is burned. It's a perfume. We know what incense is. And, and it rises up and it's a picture of the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice to God. It's not just a burning dead animal carcass. There's this incense. And so it's all a picture of Christ and what he's done for us. He's the lamb that is slain. His blood is what removes our guilt and shame. And it's not just a legal issue. God the Father is pleased with the aroma of the Son's obedience. Incense. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, there's a lot said about the incense. There are things said like this. You are not to use this formula for the perfume that's special, reserved for worship. Do not take that home and make your own version of it. You can't go to church and say, man, I love that smell. All right. Obviously, they weren't talking about uh, essential oils. All right. Those don't smell so great. If you love essential oils, you become numb-nosed, but that's another topic. So they come and they love the smell of the incense, and then they go home and say, I'd like that in our house. So they make their own little version of it. They, they copy what they had at church, and God says they're not to do that. Well, after all of the second half of Exodus and the first nine chapters of Leviticus, so much detail that many of you that try to read through the Bible bail before you get to Leviticus 10. Leviticus 10 is the great opening day of the worship service. The tabernacle's there. The high priest has already made sacrifices for him and for his sons who are priests. Everything is ready exactly as God says. And he goes as a representative of the coming Christ, the high priest. And there's going to be this great worship service. And as the service starts, the sons who are priests, the sons of Aaron, bring the incense and they offer it up in the burning in the fire pans. And God rains fire down on them and kills them in front of Aaron and everybody. They're struck dead. And Moses says to Aaron, you are not to cry out. Do not complain. Do not say, how could God treat us this way? Because you remember what God said. He is holy. And he will be treated as holy by anybody that represents him in this worship. What did the sons do? It's not carefully explained, but it seems clear that they have brought incense and burned incense in a way that was not according to God's word. Perhaps they thought they would improve it. Whatever it was, it was a self-styled approach. We're going to bring incense. God likes incense. So we're going to have that wonderful picture there of the sweet aroma. But we threw in some extra things. And God rejects it and kills them. Because Israel has to learn from the very beginning. 
you are not allowed to change worship to what you think would be really a great idea and think that God will be pleased. Sometimes it's not innovation. Sometimes it's, we could say traditionalism or conservatism. We tend to think of innovation. We say, well, the little church here, we don't have a dance team and clowns and puppets to try to get people interested in church because the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Well, that's great. But we can be in love with traditionalism in a way that dishonors the Lord because maybe our traditions that have developed in the short time that this church has existed, the last 24 years, are there any traditions that have developed that are not really commands from God, but they're just the way we've done things and they were based on biblical principles, but we need to do better. We need to be more careful. We need to be growing in our understanding and we're clinging to the traditions. When the church is first planted, nobody is tempted to say, well, we've never done it like this here before. I mean, because the church just got started, so there's no history to point back to and say, we've never done it like this before. But I remember about 10 years into the, into the um, church here, Someone said, why are we doing this? We've never done it that way before. And I thought, oh my goodness, we've become like the oldest traditionalist church. We've never done it that way. We've never said we've never done it that way before either, I said. So let's not start that. We have tried to fashion our understanding of worship by the scriptures, peel away things that distract, focus on things that are precious, but... While the principles are biblical, there's always room to grow. Or as the reformer said, always reforming. So we don't get to stop and say, okay, however we did it in the first five years, that's, that's in stone. That's Jesus' way of doing it. Well, the principles are biblical, but surely as we grow spiritually, there are ways for us to worship more Biblically, wholeheartedly. I don't have a list for you. I wish I did. It would be simple. But what I want to warn us against is this. We cannot say to God, we're not ever, ever changing anything about worship because this is the way we do it. But what if as we grow as believers, we see there are areas that need growing as well. And in worship, there are areas to do better, then we don't want to cling to a tradition and say, oh no, we're not changing because it would be just like the person who's always innovating and saying, wait, 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 I've got an even better idea of how to make church exciting. They're both the same at the root. It's us not following God, us being in control. Uh, another one that we just read about this morning in Malachi 1, we can, there's another way of worshiping God in the wrong way that gets rejected, and that's that worshiping God you know, at half price. Low-cost Christianity, and we've talked about that before, and we read it in Malachi. God seems not to care very much about us, we might say to ourselves, and in our self-pity, 
We come to church and we're a bit frustrated with God. And so we go through the motions. We still give something. We still are there. We're still sitting at church. But our heart is half here and our wallet is half open and our willingness to reach out to the person next to us is half of what it used to be. Everything seems to be so hard that used to be natural. And if we're not careful, we all slip into that and we tell each other it's okay. But giving God in part what we owe him in whole will always result in him rejecting that worship. If we're to be wholehearted, if we're to love the person sitting next to us, us, Chuck's been preaching through uh, Philippians, if we are to come together and not merely think of our own personal interests, but what about the interests of others? And not to think that we're the most significant thing in the room, but what about the person next to you who's much more significant, or at least you ought to see them that way. They are much more significant. So think about them. Focus on God. And if we become half-hearted in that, even though we have all the right doctrines, even if we have a very careful approach, we sing, we pray, we preach, we teach in the right way, God will reject it, like he did in the day of Malachi, where he says to them over and over, should I receive this from your hand at all? Let me give you one last one under this category, and that is God refuses, this is it, sorry, this is the last big category. God refuses to accept worship that is offered to him outwardly, it's in the right way, but it's for the wrong motive. Worship, we've talked about, is seeing the worth of God, being gripped by his worth to the point that we're self-forgetful. Who would want to focus on me? Who would want to focus on us? When he is here. And so we're reading his word. We are responding to his voice. And we're forgetful of each other to a certain degree. As we're caught up in him. If we come and we go through the motions of being all about God. But it's really all about us. We're offering him something that really isn't a gift of love and gratitude to him. Because he's worth it. It really is a small bribe dressed in the clothes of worship. And so we're coming and saying, here, take Sunday morning. But as God's taking Sunday morning, we say, now you know, we whisper, you know what that's for, right? That's that's for this. In Scripture and in our own experience, we see how easy it is For people to appear to be worshiping God, but they're doing all those things in the right way, you know, the right formula, the right words, the right God, but the wrong motive. They're doing it to bribe God. And usually that means there are other areas in life that they are not obeying God in, and they would like Sunday morning to pay off Thursday. Sunday pays off all next week. I don't live my whole life. I don't love my wife like, the church, like Christ loved the church. I don't point my children to Jesus. I don't give up my rights for the good of other people. You know, I, I, okay, so I don't do that. But I give God Sunday morning, and that helps pay for the rest. Do you remember King Saul? He was commanded to put the Amalekites to death. You can go back and read why. 
Saul doesn't put them to death. He doesn't destroy all the livestock and all the wealth of the Amalekites, like God said to do, to devote it to destruction. It's all to be destroyed. You are not to keep any of it. You're to kill the king. You're to, you're to do away with all the wealth of the Amalekites. It is a destruction. It's, you're not looting them. You're not benefiting from this. So Saul doesn't do that. He lets the king live, and he, he keeps a lot of the valuable things, the livestock, etc. And when Samuel comes and meets Saul after his victorious battles against the Amalekites, you know that Saul says, welcome, preacher. The preacher's here, guys. It's great. So glad you came. God gave us victory. And we did everything God said. And Samuel asked the simple question, what is this bleeding? I, what, what is this noise I hear? I hear animals. Lots of animals. Those are the Amalekites animals, aren't they? And Saul said, well, okay, well, I did most of what God said. Okay, well, I, I would have done it all, but the people wanted to keep the animals. And, and don't worry, Samuel, God is okay with this because we are going to devote it to God in this gigantic, you know, nationwide sacrifice and worship of God. And Samuel tells him that God is grieved and God rejects King Saul. Listen to how Samuel describes what Saul did when he uses worship as a substitute for obedience or worship as an attempted bribe so that God will overlook the other disobedience, the lack of obedience. This is what Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, in verse 22. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed, to listen to God, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. It's like witchcraft. And insubordination, putting your desires above God's, disobeying God. Insubordination is as, the, is as iniquity and idolatry. Quite an amazing statement. You kept those animals against God's will. You're presenting them to God at the big national worship service, and God will not accept them as worship because you're doing these things for the wrong motive. You're thinking that this will somehow placate God, that this will satisfy God. Sunday morning will do it. Wednesday afternoon, that's fine. What I did there is okay because I gave him Sunday morning. And so Samuel says... Do you not understand? Obedience pleases God, not the death of these animals. And if you put your desires above God's insubordination, when you disobey God and you bring this sacrifice, it is like idolatry. So that brings us to the concluding point there. Every, every time we worship a wrong God, that's idolatry. Every time we worship the right God, but we make him into a new form, that's idolatry. Every time we worship the right God in the right form, in a way we prefer to do it, that's idolatry. And even when we get all of that right and we do it with our own motives, I'll do it for me, that's idolatry. How can God say, I can see how he says, you kept these animals, it's disobedience, it's iniquity. How can he say, offering me these animals is idolatry? And the answer is so important. 
every unacceptable act of worship that I've mentioned this morning, it is all idolatry because anytime we step away from the scriptures and the God of the scriptures and we take control of it and do it the way we want in whatever way that I've mentioned, God is really not the one that it's all about anymore, is he? No idol is really what it's about either. It's us. Every deviation from pleasing worship to the living God is an act of self-worship. Why would we adjust church to suit us? Why would we give Sunday morning as a bribe? Because we're more really concerned about us. Why would we adjust God? Because we want a God that suits, that, that fits our lives. All of it has this gigantic deity in the middle of it that isn't a God. It's you and me. Nobody really worships Buddha because they love Buddha. They worship Buddha because they're hoping Buddha is going to promote them. So it's really self-love. And every time we, we warp the worship of the living God, it's because there's a different God at the center. It's actually all idolatry. There is one final point I want to use as the conclusion. We'll save the rest for later. You can do all of that right and still be rejected. And you can do all of that with the desire of doing it right, but it's flawed, it's imperfect, and be accepted. How? The last thing is that God rejects all worship that is offered directly to him without a mediator. Having a new heart, being born again, having now the desire to worship God, the desire to use Sunday morning with other believers to exalt God. I'm, I mean, for the real Christian, having that desire, that's wonderful. Bringing God the things that he deserves and commands, that's wonderful. Truth fueling our worship, that's wonderful. But if we forget, because we've been walking with the Lord for a long time, if we forget as a church that every song, every prayer, every sermon, every response to his word, every effort to show him our gratitude has to be brought to him through the bloody sacrifice of the perfect one whose worship was perfect and presented by the high priest that never dies. If we forget that and we begin to think that because we're here and we really are serious, God accepts it on its own merits, then our worship will be rejected. Just think of the times where men who have walked with the Lord for decades and been given such extraordinary friendship from God, when they go to God outside of the mediatorial work of a sacrifice and a priest, and they think, come on, I've walked with God for decades. God, God sees me as one of his favorites. Everybody knows that. And I'm kind of in a special position. I have a pass that says, you don't need that dead animal. You don't need that priest. You can just go straight in and offer your sacrifice yourself. You can go in and talk to God in the Holy of Holies. 
Every time we see someone attempt that, it is deadly. God is still an all-consuming fire, Hebrews says. The new covenant hasn't made God easy to deal with. He is still the holy God of Mount Sinai. But the new covenant provides an open way through Christ. It provides a sacrifice and a priest who sits on the throne, who introduces our worship to the Father. When King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6, Isaiah is distraught. And he's so bothered, so concerned, he goes into the temple and turns his face toward God. You know, you can kind of feel it. God, now what? Uzziah was such a good king and had enjoyed so many decades of God's blessing. The nation had prospered. The great king is dead. Now what? So Isaiah goes to meet with the Lord and God, of course, shows him himself. A king that is that good, you might think, maybe he could just, he could go straight into the holy place himself. He thought so. You know the story of Uzziah. At the end of his reign, when he was an old man, after so many years of God's grace, so many years of kindness and blessing, distinguishing his reign, Uzziah comes to the church and says, I, I just once, I'd like to go right in and give this to my God myself. And the priest said, Uzziah, you know God forbids that. You cannot take that sacrifice. You cannot take your praises into the holy place. You have to go through the mediation of this, of this altar and this priesthood. And he orders his soldiers to get rid of the preachers so I can go do what I want to do. And God strikes him with leprosy. And he's never healed. I know that none of us, when we first cry out to the Lord for mercy, and he saves us. None of us come to church the next day, the next week and say, you know what? I have done so well. I'm here on my own merits, and I think God will accept me just because I'm just so earnest. We know God accepts me. That's amazing, because Christ. And I bring all my prayers and my, my, my pitiful prayers, my pitiful re responses, my childlike efforts. There, I bring them to Christ, who hands them to the Father, and through his perfection, they are pleasing. But 24 years later... As a church, and God has been kind to us, have we secretly thought like Uzziah? I think we could kind of come just straight on in. No, no mediation needed. Just us and the, and the unapproachable, absolute God. No matter how careful we are with worship as a church, unless Christ presents it, Unless there's a mediator that meets us at the door and ushers us to the Father. We are a people without hope. Reverse those on your own. You can have the notes if you want them. Just shoot me an email or a text or tell me after church. And you can go back and, and just flip those. And you see the kind of worship that God delights in. All of that brought to him through his son. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.